Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Previously on the Mike Wise Show. Hello, this is Larry Brown. I've been trying to tell Mike this show will get better until just practice. (laughs) You're talking about practice? The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Actually, Darlene, it's Bruce Bernstein. Mike is taking some well-deserved time off, so I'm attempting to fill his size 15 Chuck Taylors. Since the Mike Weiss Show debuted in January of 2019, Mike has done 77 original episodes and has shared hundreds of stories with some of basketball's greatest characters. This week, we'll hear from coaches Larry Brown, Mike Brown, Jeff Van Gundy, PJ Carlesimo, and George Carl. Mike did shows with all of them, and we tried to find the most entertaining stories for you this week. So let's start in 1992 with Michael Jordan's championship team, No not the Bulls, the Dream Team. PJ was an assistant and was with the team every step of the way. I know that that was the greatest team that people say was ever assembled. Uh, you're you're only a year away or a couple of years away from coaching Seton Hall to the national title game, and you're you're on a court with Magic, Bird, Jordan, Stockton, Malone, Barkley. The you know prob- a good ten of the ten of the probably you know, 30 greatest players of all time. That must, I mean, I know you're, you got to coach them, but there's also a party that must have been, well, been wake up. I, I got to pinch myself. Well, pretty much every day. And, and that's exactly true. What was good. First of all, um, that group, it was the best team ever assembled, Mike. I mean, you know, you always, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but I mean, come on. Um, there hadn't been a team ever assembled like that. Uh, and I don't think there ever will be. Um, but what, what was interesting, what was good for me was there was various, I was familiar with some guys, knew some guys very well. I mean, I, I, I knew Michael, Pat, Patrick, Patrick and Chris, obviously from the big East, uh, I, I should put names, but Patrick Ewing and Chris Mullen, obviously I knew extremely well from the big, East. I knew Michael very well from Nike, all the Nike trips together. We, you know, played a lot of golf together and some of them I knew very well. I didn't know Carl and John at all. I didn't know, know Birdie at all, Larry Bird. Um, I, I knew Clyde, you know, like, so maybe seven or eight of the guys I knew pretty well, one or two of the others, I, I kind of knew to say hello, and that was it. And three of them I really didn't know at all. I didn't know Stock. I didn't know Carl Malone, and, and I didn't know Birdie. And so getting to know those guys, like that two months was, you know, you, you can't overstate what that was like. And, and there were segments. The, the first segment was when we met in uh, La Jolla, 
Uh, we practiced at UCSD, which ironically is where my wife Carolyn went to uh, college. But uh, we practiced it at UCSD. Everybody forgets we had to qualify for the Olympics. We're talking uh, before about you know, the job that Jeff Van Gundy's team has done qualifying this group for the world championships. Well, we hadn't qualified. We'd lost in 88 in Seoul. and We didn't win the gold medal in Seoul. So we had to qualify for the Olympics in Barcelona, and our tournament to qualify was called the Tournament of the Americas, and it was held in Portland uh, in the old building, the old glass house, the Coliseum in Portland. So we went from San Diego or La Jolla to Portland, we won the tournament there. I think we played six games there against teams. I remember one of those games, but Bird just went off. It was like it was like this time warp when Bird. <laughs> all of a sudden, it was Larry Legend, nineteen eighty six, and it was probably one of the probably the last time he was that great on a basketball. Yeah, court. Well, it's funny because there's only twelve guys on the team, and two of them really were not a hundred percent for most of the summer, and that was Birdie with his back, and John Stockton. John was coming back from an injury. I forget what injury it was. But um, a lot of times at practice, we only had 10 guys. Now, it didn't matter in San Diego because we practiced against a college team. I mean, a college team. It was like Bobby Hurley, uh, Christian uh, Leitner, Chris Weber. I mean, it was, yeah. all, it was all Americans. It was great, great players. Great oh, wait, elements. Christian Leitner was on your team. <laughs> Christian was on our team. I'm sorry. Uh, C-Webb, uh, Alan Bobby, Houston. Penny Hardaway. Uh, I think so. I mean, great players. Roy Williams coached that team. So when we practiced in San Diego, we never went against each other. We didn't practice in Portland because we had something like six games in eight days. So all we had was shoot-arounds and we played the games. So the first time we really practiced against each other was in Monaco because we trained in Monte Carlo for a week before we went to Barcelona. That was the third segment of the summer. And when we practiced there – there was twelve. There was only twelve bodies, and a couple of the practices, uh, John and Larry couldn't practice. So it was five on five. That was all we had, and that was the first time they had really gone against each other. We never had to go against each other uh, in San Diego. So the best basketball, the best practices, and the, and the most competitive basketball of the entire summer were our practices in Monte Carlo. And that mm. was, the, you know, right before we went to Barcelona. And then, of course, same thing in Barcelona. We didn't practice. We had game, a lot of games. And, you know, we had shoot-arounds on the day off. That was it. So um, to, from a watch standpoint and a competitive standpoint, the, 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 most, the best things to see, and there are, there, there's some tapes of them. I think Jack McCallum wrote a great book about it, actually, about the entire uh, summer. But, but he, he referenced those practices in Monte Carlo because that was the best basketball, watching those guys play there. And the, the other thing, because, you, you know, you asked me, like, what was the experience like? People forget, because we had lost in 88, because it was the first time that the professionals had played, and it wasn't just our professionals, it was you know all over the, the world. They had been using professionals the other countries, they just didn't call them professionals uh, prior to that. But it was interesting because you had guys like Michael and Chris and Patrick who had played in the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles, but the majority of the guys on the team had never been in the Olympics. So this was like you know an unbelievable thing for them to play in an Olympic Games so they were really motivated. So you put that on top of the fact that it was the first time the pros had played. We had lost the previous Olympics in 88 in Seoul. So they came in kind of with, hey, we got something to prove here. And they didn't take, like, they didn't take any shortcuts. Like yeah. I remember Chuck, the first meeting, Chuck Daly, the head coach, the, the first meeting, he told the guys, hey, you know, 
we know we're the best team. We know everybody expects us to win. But, hey, guys, you know, we've got – and they did. They didn't shortcut anything. If you go back and watch any of the games, Mike, the thing that will impress you the most is the defense and the passing, like how unselfish they were. I mean, we overpassed. Oh, yeah. Oh. We overpassed. Oh, I mean, it was – yeah, it was – There were times it was, it was, like it was a pass, if, it should have been a shot. And there were two more passes. Like they, sh- it was like hockey. There should have been two or three assists. Yeah, it was. It was if. It was if. It was as if they all wanted to. Sh- while you know, while other kids on the playground in America were showing off their dunk skills, it was as if they they wanted to show who could give up the rock the best and the most creatively. I mean, it was. This is how you play basketball. And if you go back and watch yeah. that team. And they had that attitude. It didn't matter if we played a, a you know team that we knew wasn't good or we played a good team. You know, we played Lithuania or somebody who was like, hey, you know, Yugoslavia, you, you got to be ready to play tonight. These guys are good. They played the exact same way every time. So that's why, you know, you see the level of the scores were, you know, remarkable. But if you watch the game, it wasn't any lollygag and it wasn't any showboat or anything like that. It was they came out and they defended and they passed the ball and they played so incredibly well. It was, I mean, really, it was beautiful to watch. It really was. Do um, does Larry Legend know you call him Birdie? Everybody called him Birdie. Uh, really? Yeah, really. That was it's funny because um, there were T-shirts made. It was you know it was funny to see the groups you know hang out together. Everybody's families were there and, you know, through at least in Barcelona, if not the other two segments. But the two guys who hung out together a lot were Bertie and Patrick. It was really funny. We, to the point where there, we had T-shirts made up. I still have it. It's like falling apart. But it was like um, Larry, they, they had a nickname for Patrick, and I'm drawing a blank. But it oh, was, it was Harry and Larry. Larry. Harry. They called, Larry and uh, Harry, they called right? I don't know why, but Pat, uh, Patrick's nickname was Harry. So the, the T-shirts were Larry and Harry. And it was like those two were inseparable. Like if you came down to breakfast, you know, guys would be different tables every day. The coaches would be at one. Those two were always together at a table. If we, we went out to dinner, it was those two. It was kind of like they were Mutt and Jeff the whole, uh, the whole, the whole summer. And it was Larry and Harry, Patrick and uh, Larry Bird. Yeah. You're dealing with real professionals there, and you. Um, I'm talking to PJ Carlissimo, person who's uh, as an Olympic gold medal as an assistant coach. Do they give you guys a gold medal, by the way, or no? Not? Coaches don't get them. Uh, we got oh, beautiful rings from USA Basketball, but you know, same that's as in any other sport. Mark Spitz gets a gold medal. His coach doesn't get it. So yeah, uh, but the yeah. athlete. Well, exactly. You, team sports. Well, yeah, you could make a case team sports are a little bit different, but that's probably not fair to the. You know, the coaches that coach the, uh, well, the individual guys. Yeah, yeah. if they're going to do that, though, you know, like, like why the heck do they give the guy in the, in the equestrian the medal? I mean, the horse gets stiff. That seems like it's completely <laughs> good, that, That's a good up. point. That's you a know, better argument for sure. In the official team photo of the 2003 NBA champion San Antonio Spurs, next to P.J. Carlesimo in the front row is Mike Brown. Both were assistants to Greg Popovich at the time. Mike worked three seasons for Pop and is one of the shining stars on Pop's coaching tree. After his time with the Spurs, Mike moved on to Indiana for two seasons alongside Rick Carlisle before getting his first head coaching gig with the Cavaliers and, you know who, in 2005. Between two stints in Cleveland and 71 games as coach of the Lakers, he had a winning percentage of nearly 62%, outstanding by any standard. In 2016, he joined Steve Kerr's staff in Golden State and won championships in his first two seasons there, beating the Cavaliers and, you know who, twice. But as Mike told Mike, 
His coaching guru still resides in the 210. The Spurs and the Warriors just have so much. You talk about family. You, you, you have Steve. I look, um, Bruce Bernstein, a man we both know, and you worked with at ESPN for a while. He sent me a, he texted me a photo of a Spurs, um, a Spurs coach, you know, Spurs roster photo. And seated on the left hand side is you, Mike Budenholzer, uh, Bud, and, um, oh, shoot, PJ Carlissimo. I mean, and, and then right next to, right next to him was RC Buford. So, I mean, there's a lot of success out of that organization. It's amazing to me that that uh, oh, and Brett Brown was on a staff as well. I mean, he's he's now coaching. I mean, you must run into these guys all the time and talk San Antonio still. I, yeah, I, wow. you know, Pop is like the Godfather. I mean, it, <laughs> I, I, there's there's somebody. And I think there's probably somebody in every single organization out there that has come through San Antonio at some point uh, in time in their their careers. Uh, Pop just, he does a phenomenal job. Uh, Pop and RC, they do a phenomenal job of, of uh, you know, trying to find uh, the right people to come work for their organization. And then, you know, you learn a lot, you grow a lot while, while being there, and they, they help you get to a point to where, you know, you're able to go break off on your own and do your own thing. And uh, not only, not you know, not only as a as an assistant coach or assistant GM or front office guy, you, you know, uh, coming through there. For instance, Sam Presti, that's where he got his start, and uh, he's the GM president of Oklahoma City. But mm-hmm. not only as a you know as a coach or a front office guy, <laughs> excuse me, but also uh, as a player. And, you know, two guys. If that's the same team that I'm thinking of, you know, you got two guys on that team in Danny Ferry and and Steve Kerr. Who uh, obviously have yep. had a lot of success as GMs and and uh, coaches. Yeah, they were play- They were both players on that team. Correct. So 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 you know you go down the line, you see different guys, whether it be uh, as a player or uh, as an assistant coach or a front office guy come through that organization. Uh, a lot of them have have, have uh, had success there and, and, and broken off from there and and going on to do some special things in the in the league. Uh, Mike Brown, I remember that a friend of mine told me, um, he said, he said, when you got the job with the Lakers and then, and you got hired by the Cavaliers again. And he, he was, I guess he was talking about Lenny Wilkins as well. And some other, because he goes, and this person happens to be an African-American journalist. He said, you know, the NBA is now shown progress because you now have the black retread coach. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, okay, wait a minute. That's a little harsh for Mike Brown. He's had a lot of success, but I mean, there is something to be said for um, not a good old boy network, but, but you, you know, because you were fired from one job, it didn't paralyze your coaching career. Like it's done for so many um, uh, African-American coaches in football and baseball and other sports. Yeah. You know, the the NBA is probably uh, one, one of the organizations out there and you can, uh, even go outside of uh, outside of sports and just used in, in in business and you can include in business too that that uh, is has uh, forward thinking and you know they, they usually lead the pack in a lot of different uh, areas that uh, uh, of social you know injustices in terms of uh, making sure that uh, they do things the right way and uh, they don't base a lot of things on you know color or gender or anything like that. You can 
see it uh, now in, in terms of all uh, the hirings that have, have occurred uh, for, for females. You know, as females are starting to move to the bench uh, in our business and starting to prominent roles, prominent roles in the front office, and and so you know you don't take that that stuff lightly. And uh, as a guy that has had an opportunity to uh, to be a head coach uh, on more than one occasion, you know you know it's an honor. Uh, you know it, it, it is a privilege. And and again, you can throw all those things in there: lucky, blessed, fortunate, so on and so forth. But you know, you you know that uh, uh, there are a lot of people that look up to you uh, because of the different opportunities that you have had uh, in this business at the highest level, and so there's uh, uh, the right type of pressure that you feel in order to try to have success, uh, but if not, at least do things the right way, uh, so other guys will continue to have opportunities going forward that come after you. One candidate to be the first female NBA head coach is Becky Hammond, currently on the Spurs bench with Pop. In spite of his gruff exterior, Greg Popovich is one of the most inclusive and empowering figures in the game. It's one of the reasons he is so respected. When Pop won his first chip in the 1999 NBA Finals, the team San Antonio beat was the New York Knicks, coached by Jeff Van Gundy. As is usually the case around Madison Square Garden, there was lots of drama both on and off the court during that 1999 season. And this story about a magical garden moment during the conference semifinals never gets old. Jeff Van Gundy's my guest, uh, and you know his voice very well from ESPN, where he's been for over a decade calling games with Mike Breen and uh, Mark Jackson, and and a coach that I got to know when he was co- when he was coaching the Knicks for many years under Pat Riley, and later uh, under Don Nelson, and then by himself for many years. Before, because because I think that New York becomes so big in people's minds, and I feel like, in some ways, Jeff, like your identity, you almost have to go back to talk to New York about everybody every time you give an interview with somebody. And I feel like, yeah, it was a piece of his life, but this was the coolest piece for me, anyway. I gotta I gotta share this, the 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 uh, all the things that happened during the 1999 season have already happened. Uh, Ernie Grunfeld is fired. The team is in eighth place, barely holding on to the last playoff spot. And the trades for Marcus Camby and Latrell Sprewell have been mocked. And everybody's wondering why they gave the heart and soul away and John Starks and Charles Oakley. And all the infighting organizationally came down to uh, you remaining as the coach. Dave Checkett's choosing essentially you over Oni Grunfeld, which was never an open fight, but it because because ownership and everybody else let thing let people get away with uh infighting at the garden and that's and it was a little bit of a shark tank that's what it became i i find out that phil jackson had met with the knicks um and you're the coach still and and on and that day's front page the story the story reads that you know phil jackson has met with dave check it's it's game four of the atlanta hawks series you have a chance to sweep the hawks and go into the eastern conference finals um, do you remember this day? Well, I think so many, when you coach for so long in one place, and then also, Mike, when you, uh, you know, it's been such a long period of time since then, uh, you can forget a lot of things about a lot of specific games, but there are some things that remained etched in your mind. 
and the response by the fans towards me on that day was uh, something I'll never forget. And I think it shows you a myth about New York that they only respond to stars. Um, certainly, I was no you know star or celebrity. And it's similarly, some of the most beloved players in Nick history for the fan base uh, weren't stars uh, or the best players, you know, Starks and Mason, um, Harper, uh, they were Oakley. They responded to hard work and competitive spirit. And, uh, and that's why I'll never forget that, that game that day. Mm. I was sitting courtside, Frank Isola was as well, and a, and a bunch of the beat writers when they still gave us good seats. And and the, and the Hawks are about to go down four straight to the Knicks, and what everybody realizes now was just a masterful stroke of genius, not only by Ernie getting younger players to uh, to overwhelm less athletic teams, but Jeff Van Gundy to exploit those ma- mismatches and find a way to get those players up for that, that playoff series. And that whole arena, 19,763 people are chanting, Jeff Van Gundy, Jeff. And, and I just remember looking at you and it looked like you were going to lose it until you grabbed your diet Coke. <laughs> is that, is that, is that, is that the sequence? Well, you know, uh, a couple of weeks earlier, that would have been, uh, they would have ended with sucks. So, you know, <laughs> it, it, things, things can turn quickly uh, uh, in sports. And I would just say that you're right. Um, uh, I think, you know, the Spreewell edition, you know, so much in that lockout season uh, has been forgotten, like Spreewell's injury uh, to start the season. That's that, right. to me, was if it was, in a, if it was in a normal season, I think he missed 13 games, it would have been, you know, no big thing. You would have had a lot of time to work through it. But because of the compressed nature of that schedule, somebody missing that many games coming to a new team, and I think we had like – uh, maybe a 10-day training camp uh, where people were out of shape. It was, you know, we had major changes to our team, so the continuity factor wasn't there. But even though we were eight seed, I think the one thing that people forget about that season is if it would have been an 82-game season, we would have ended up as a 50-win team. We were a really good team. And so, unfortunately for Miami, they met us in the first round. Uh, we found our way to get, a, you know, a dramatic uh, series win down there. And then Atlanta was a little hurt and we swept them. And so by the, by the time we rolled in to play in Indiana, you know, we were healthy, we were confident. Um, I mean, Ewing wasn't, you know, real healthy, but uh, for the most part, we were really good at that point in the year. So yeah, that Atlanta series was uh, interesting because they weren't playing They were, I think we were playing at the football stadium, uh, and uh, Camby had one of the most incredible plays, the dunk over oh. Matumbo in game two. Um, one of the great plays yeah. that I ever witnessed um, live. Terrific. Yeah, it was uh, out of this world, and it, it led to something even greater. I um, I still go back to how I got the Phil Jackson story. Phil Jackson asked me one day, he said, how did nobody was talking? How did you find out? And I go, it, it was a joke. I 
I just called your agent in Montana, Todd Musburger. And I, I, he picked up the phone. I said, yeah, I found out the Knicks, the Knicks met with them. And, 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 uh, I, I kind of, I laughed and Todd had this big pause and his, as he said, ah, sigh. And he goes, those fuckers, they weren't supposed to say anything. <laughs> and I'm like, what, wait, what? Why well, didn't tell me everything. And now I can reveal my source on that because I don't know. Um, Todd's already got the next money. I think he feels probably good about things. Right yeah, now, it was you're... interesting. You know that like that came out the day of uh, Game Four. Yeah, and um, and I or no, it came out before Game Four, right? Like yeah, yeah. Because I remember going to the press conference before the game and being asked about it, and I I really didn't have any idea about it because you know. Like I wasn't reading, like you didn't read the papers or you were aware of what was, as you're walking there, I, I just remember someone telling me like, you know, this is going to be asked. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I didn't have any idea. And I don't know, did they deny it initially or something? Yeah, the whole thing, was sure exactly. the, the whole thing turned into part of the circus of that season in many ways, because uh, Dave Chekets had told me that uh, that was emphatically uh, um, a lie and that I would that I would ruin my career if I printed that story. And then I'll, everybody that gives Jim, Jim Gray credit for being LeBron's foof or whatever, I, I, I always defer to Jim Gray because he got Dave to admit on the broadcast that day somehow that he did in fact meet with uh, Phil Jackson. And it ruined Peter Vesey's day because he had told uh, Hannah, Hannah Storm on NBC that that story in the Times was a lie. And for a moment, I thought I got played. And um, and then when it all came out, I went up to Jim Gray and I said, thank you. Thank you. I, um, someone from my own paper even came up to me and said, what are you doing? And so it, it vindicated a lot. But but the best part was this will tell you everything you need to know about Dave Checkets. He takes me some clandestine, uh, you know, office under the garden, which I'd never been to to this day. And he he. Barry Watkins, a former PR guy, brings me in there and Chekets looks at me and he goes, I'll never lie to you again. I'm really sorry. I'm going to go tell the media. And this was the day after you guys won. I'm going to go tell the media I lied. And uh, and from that moment on, Dave Chekets and I were great. And um, and I was just happy that you took the Knicks to the finals. You were like an Allen Houston runner in the lane against Miami from maybe not having that job. And all of a sudden you're taking the Knicks to the finals within a couple more weeks. And I don't know, it was it was just great to see uh, people that I thought really worked hard and didn't have agendas, just winning and getting the most out of their team. And so, for, so as a beat writer, you know, you, you don't like to root, but man, it was fun to root that year. <laughs> yeah. And those guys were the, the players that we had. Uh, they were easy, easy to get behind because yes. they were, you know, they, we had, you know, the thing about the Knicks is, uh, we may not have always played great, but there were very few times uh, during any season that you said you would say as a fan, "Man, I got shortchanged tonight. They didn't, they didn't bring it, or that player didn't bring it." And um, and that's what made it, I think, such a a good group to coach is that by nature they were very competitive. One of the most memorable Allen Iverson highlights was not his crossover against MJ or stepping over Ty Lue in the 0-1 finals. It was after the following season's playoffs when Philly lost to Boston in the first round in 2002. AI's then-coach Larry Brown alluded to this famous moment at the very beginning of this show. 
I supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. I mean, it, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Not a game. Not, a, not, not the game that I go out there and, and die for and play every game like it's my last. Not the game. We're talking about practice, man. Larry Brown coached AI for six seasons, and while they had their differences at times, there was, and remains, genuine respect between the two. The backstory behind AI's famous practice rant is not well known, but Coach Brown gave it up to Mike. And then you had Allen. And, you know, what can you say about Allen other than he's going to give you a chance to win every game? But it is what it is. And, you know, I go everywhere, Mike. And, you know, a lot of people, they look at me and they don't know my name. But 90% of them say, you coach Allen. It's, it's hysterical. <laughs> I mean. Well, I, I, for years, oh, that's hilarious. That That's your identity in life, that you coached Allen? I, that's it. I and used they to all want, they oh, go all ahead. want to talk about that practice episode. And nobody realized what really happened. Um, we had we lost in the playoffs to Detroit yep. um, in a heartbreaker. And we, you know, we were going to have an exit meeting. I don't know, you know, where we were all going to meet together and talk about the summer and the league, the season and how we could do better. And Alan didn't show up. Um, and I was really upset. And so I called him up and I said, you know, you missed this meeting. We all lost together. We all, we ought to be together. And he gave me some, you know, one of his excuses that he always used to have. I used to laugh. Um, but we had, we decided to meet at three o'clock um, at my office. So at three o'clock, he wasn't there. So I was leaving the office and I went down to pick up my car. And he pulls up and he said, Coach, where are you going? I said, we had a meeting at 3, Alan. You you weren't here, so I'm, my time's pretty valuable. Coach Smith taught me that. They said, no, 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 I got to I gotta talk to you, Coach. I apologize. But he, he said, I, you got to tell me, Coach, are you going to trade me? What? Said, what do you mean? He was, he, he he was said, worried about I, being traded that day? Yeah. He I said, never he heard, heard that. that. He heard that. You know, and I said, Alan, no, I, there's, but you got to do some things that are different. You got to, you know, I, cause I said at the meeting in the morning with the press, you know, it, there are things that he got to start addressing if he's going to reach his, you know, his, his full potential. Cause I, you know, there's no doubt he's the best athlete I ever saw. Yeah. So he kept talking to me about this practice. So, then he had three hours to kill before he met with the press. And the first thing on his mind was he wanted to say he wasn't going to get traded. That was all he thought about. And I don't know what he did during those three hours. I can only imagine. But when they asked him about practice, that blew him out, blew him off. Because uh, the only thing that interested him then was, no, coach told me I'm not being traded. And uh, he didn't want to hear anything else. Right. He, we, oh. we were talking about, oh, that's, I, I don't know if I ever heard that part of the story. All I remember was our, our mutual friend, Stephen A. On, on the news going, Larry Brown has disrespected Allen Iverson again. 
<laughs> and um but uh, uh, uh yeah i uh that that is such a wild story i still look at alan and i think with all the problems he had growing up and everything and, and that he still battles some of the things today i always felt like if you put a carrot in front of him man he went and got it if you put a carrot if you told alan iverson that this is what could happen if you did this and you did it so well i i looked at that as his hall of fame induction it was almost like he was going to get he was gonna he was gonna straighten up his life, fix his life, so we could so we could stand up proudly and and be cathartic at that Hall of Fame induction and and uh, and boy I still I, if if I'm anywhere in his life I'm saying here Alan here's a carrot for you right here you, you know this is try and get your finance try and give this but uh, because if he doesn't have a goal man he's he's he 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 will use his time not wisely. Well, he's. He's straightened himself out in a lot of ways. Um, I think the league's got to figure out a way to use him because yeah. I, I can't go anywhere. You know, when I went to practices and with Bill Self or Cal or Turge or Chad or wherever I went, first thing they want to know after I'm done is, can you tell me something about Allen? He was my favorite player. Everybody. Um, and you know, because he's six feet, 165 pounds, and most people can identify with, with him. Oh. And then you re- you realize how tough, how competitive. But he he's the greatest athlete I've ever seen. I've and never I've been seen, around. Yeah, I've been around some great ones, but I don't. Oh, I, I can't imagine anybody being better than him. I just thought of I just thought of something. I'm brainstorming now, but God, what you know how awesome it would be to see Larry Brown and Allen Iverson go around team to team and talk about coach player relationship, just really, and, and have guys ask questions. And boy, I, I think it would just be, it'd be like what the young fellas need to know almost, I, you know, like I would love to see Larry Brown and Allen Iverson at the NBA symposium, whenever the next rookie symposium is, or shoot, you guys could do a, you guys could do a tour, a barnstorming tour together and uh, and I bet, well, as long as he showed up on time, I think it'd be great. Well, I think he has so much to say. Yeah. Um, and you, you're right because you know he didn't he didn't grow up with all the advantages so many of us have. Um, I love his mom to death. She had him when she was real young. Yeah. Um, and you know when you think of all the things he had to go through with in his life and he was so loyal to his friends. And, you know, I used to have arguments with a lot of his friends. You know, they used to tell me how much he loved, they loved him. And I, I used to say, well, if you really love Alan, you got to leave him alone and let him do his thing. Oh. And concentrate on things that were really important to him. What did they and say? Alan would get, they, they would, they weren't real responsive and receptive to what I said, and Alan wasn't either, because Alan was, would always say, Coach, you don't realize what we've been through together and how much yeah. I owe these guys. And I'd say, Alan, you owe them to be the very best you can be. And But that was just – I don't think it was a floor of his. I think that's what made him so special, the loyalty he had loyalty, yeah. to people. It's to people that he felt cared about him. Um, but I think also I, that I think there's 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 a lesson there too because I remember Shaquille telling me once he said, you know that 
that the people around me when I was younger, I'll keep them around if they've got their own life and I don't have to support them. But if they don't have their own goals, like what, you know, that, that, that to me is just a toxic relationship. And, and he was, I, I remember this, he surrounded himself with people that, that would tell him what he needed to hear uh, as, as opposed to what he wanted to hear. And I, I think that that's, you know, if I don't know if Alan regrets, he probably doesn't regret it because you're like, you're right. The loyalty thing was so big to him. And if he could help somebody out that was in a worse situation, he was going to do it. That's just who he was. Yeah, but I love what you said, Mike, because I know the impact he had on my teams when he spoke. Um, yeah. I, I, and I know the admiration people have for him and the respect around the league. But these young kids got to hear it. Because, you yeah. know, basketball is not forever. That that was the thing. You look at David Robinson, you look at Kobe, you look at Shaq and Barkley, this. You look what Dwayne Wade's doing. I look at Jalen Rose, uh, you know, Chauncey. Pe- people that are giving back, it, it's what what it's all about. And I think mm-hmm. Allen could, could have such a positive effect by just sharing that stuff. Uh, and that's what I was hoping, you know, thank you for soliciting my employment or whatever. <laughs> well, it's, was, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that I would have to do that because, uh, you know, and I shoot, I, I wouldn't say this if I didn't mean it. It would be one thing if you were 90 and, and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, clo- closer to uh, being put under than, than uh, you're 79, you're healthy and, and, and you're still sharp. And I, I just don't, yeah. I, I don't get it, but you know, you're right. People are uh, shoot. There, there's got to be some age discrimination going on in America right now. I don't. I don't know. I just, uh, you know, I love the game. Uh, I love what opportunities it gave, it's given me, and the people that have touched my life. And I, I just think, in some ways, it's important when you get older to share that. Uh, hi, Mark Lassery, uh co-owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, Every now and then I get tortured by Mike Weist for his show. Um, But I want to tell you, in spite of the torture, you guys should watch it. Great show. Phenomenal guests. Um, What else can I say? You know, if he wasn't doing this, we'd probably have him playing for the team because he played once a long time ago. Um, It was a long time ago. It's sad how he is today. But you never know. So thank you again. Please watch the show. Thanks, Mark, for keeping it real with Mike. Mark Lazary's bucks are riding high in the standings under Mike Budenholzer, a former assistant to, guess who, Greg Popovich. Now, Larry Brown has his own incredible coaching tree, which includes Pop, but LB was mentored by the great North Carolina coaches Frank McGuire and Dean Smith. Another member of that UNC Hoop Brotherhood is George Carl, who should be in the Hall of Fame and hopefully will be one day. George's coaching tree includes his son, Kobe, who is the Lakers G League head coach and could be on an NBA bench someday soon. As you can imagine, father and son taught coaching all the time, but George told Mike about one of his old tormentors who has become a key Kobe mentor. Kobe has turned into a, a pretty decent coach. He's coaching the Lakers G League team, isn't he? Kobe's better than decent. I think he's going to be really good. I think he, you know, he and I we talk quite frequently about coaching and yeah. And Kobe's other mentor in his life is Phil Jackson, and 
Last summer, Phil Jackson and I and Kobe went out to his house in Montana and spent three or four days together. And it was really fun. I mean, Kobe had to talk me into doing it. And, you know, Phil has probably kicked my ass more than any coach in basketball. <laughs> and, and I'm going, okay, what? And then I walk into his house, and he has all these trophies. And he has all these windows of teams that he beat. He put me in the, the bedroom where it was the Seattle Supersonic window. <laughs> Uh, so I mean, there, it's, it's it was a really. I mean, there was a lot of subconscious, subliminal commentary going on quite frequently in our in our talks. But I got to know Phil pretty well, and I, I and what's funny, you know, in a, in a strange way, Phil and I are probably a lot alike. Mm. But he does it with a Zen mentality, and I do it like a general mentality. So, you know, I'm more in the K. Uh, controlled chaos, and I think feels more into calm and mellow. <laughs> did you go fishing with them? What'd you do? Did you did you, did you share some ganja? What would you do? You know, we took a. I mean, he lives in a beautiful area, so we ran. We drove around whitefish and Kalispell, and yeah, I, I I spent three. He grew up in Great Falls, Montana. And I spent three years in Great Falls, Montana. Uh. And, you know, and then we'd wake up in the morning and talk some basketball and go to lunch. And we'd come back and talk basketball or take a tour of the city or just go out and enjoy nature. Take a, you know, we took a bike ride, I think, one time. And, uh, I mean, the, the second, and then at nighttime, Phil loves to watch movies. I mean, he loves to watch movies. So, we, some, I think one or two nights we watched a movie. It was just a, a kind of a fun thing. And. I think Kobe, you know, Kobe is very much into trying to evolve and learn, and and Phil and I are quite different offensively, and and actually quite different probably defensively. But I think it's good. To, I think again, sitting in meetings where the most information and why you did things, I think, help young helps young coaches evolve and develop their own personalities. That's that's great that he's getting the sort of. He's a mixture of the Zen and the general. Do, when he gets an NBA head coaching job, he's obviously promised you a job on his staff already, hasn't he? Uh, we've talked about it. I mean, I, I go out there. You know, I, you know, I, I think he's gonna probably have to learn how to tell me to shut the fuck up. But and I think I think he's getting strong enough to do that now. <laughs> That's that. That's that would be a. Yeah, if he was, he probably almost. He would probably almost bring you onto his staff just so he could tell you shut the fuck up. Basically, that would be part yeah. of the uh, the job. Yeah, that would be fine <laughs> with me. I'm, I, I think I'm. I think I've learned. I think I could be an assistant coach and 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 yeah. learn to shut the fuck up a little bit. That was dope. <laughs> yes, it was, Darlene. Thanks to Mike Wise for letting me borrow the mic this week. And thanks to all of our incredible guests for sharing their stories. Thank you as well to our outstanding editor, Ben Wolfen. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops Media shows. They're free and lots of fun, and if you don't agree, we'll give you your money back. Promise. We have five original shows each week. Mike Wise is back every Monday. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is here every Tuesday. It's a tremendous college hoop show. And their most recent guest is Michigan State head coach Tom Izzo. Catch and Shoot 2.0 drops each Wednesday with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin. 
Thursday, it's Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and her brand new co-host, King McClure. And finally on Friday, BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman have the Pure Hoops podcast. Please rate us and review us, five stars if you don't mind, and please stay vigilant as we battle the COVID-19 pandemic. Wear your mask, continue to social distance, treat each other like cherished teammates, even if it's a stranger. And please, keep working for social justice and a more inclusive society. Filling in for Mike Wise, this is Bruce Bernstein. We'll see you next week. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.